Hello, and welcome to the All Things To Do podcast. I'm your host, Joe Stein, Principal Consultant of Big Data Open Source Security, LLC. This is Episode 23, Resource Scheduling and Task Launching with Apache Mesos and Apache Aurora at Twitter, a talk with Bill Farner. And now, on to the show. I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Bill Farner. Bill is a software engineer with Twitter, Apache Aurora committer, and PPMC member. Welcome, Bill. Thanks. So, Bill, uh, can you tell us how did you get into open source? Uh, yeah, so we we were working on Aurora, uh, I guess, since mid-2010, early 2010. And I think from the very beginning, we kind of, we knew we wanted to open source what we were working on. And we were also working with Apache, or now Apache Mesos. And uh, since that was all open source, we saw Aurora as sort of a, a natural pairing with Mesos. Um, and then... Sort of after we really proved the system out at Twitter, we we kind of wanted to take the next step and open it up and and sort of help out the industry with the software in ways we could, whether that's actually people using it or just being inspired by it uh, and and doing their own things. And and yeah, it was uh, last year in November that we actually uh, entered into the incubator. Can you tell us a little bit more about Apache Mesos? Sure. So. Uh, just a little bit of background, at least as far as Aurora is concerned. Uh, uh, Mesos is sort of two parts, primarily uh, one part resource isolation system and one part uh, resource dispatcher. So it's going to do things like let you launch a process and it's going to do the dirty work of integrating with Linux C groups so that you can, you can constrain the CPU and memory and in the future it's going to do things like disk and network. Uh, so that you can sort of get uh, a lightweight virtual VM, uh, or sorry, a lightweight VM-like experience uh, without the actual overhead of booting up a full VM. Uh, so that creates really, really quick and uh, and painless launching of tasks and uh, and other frameworks or frameworks that are built on top of Mesos can use that to not have to do all of that dirty work of of integrating with uh, with the OS and uh, can make it really easy to to write distributed systems without having to, to do all that extra integration. And where does Apache Aurora fit in? So Aurora is a layer on top of, of Mesos. So I mentioned the word framework, and uh, that's, that's terminology from Mesos. Uh, a framework is one of these, these things that is a consumer of resources and a launcher of tasks, and Aurora is one of those. So Aurora is, uh, we, we coin it as, in the, the colloquial term, uh, sort of a private cloud system. So you can use that to basically manage your, your data center. Uh, and and I, I'll say data center, but it doesn't really have to be a data center. It can be a, even a very small cluster of machines. And the, the real goal is we, we want to make it very, very easy to launch and maintain services or things like cron jobs uh, in a cluster without having to have to step down to things like Puppet and Monit configuration for every single thing that you manage. And in addition, because of the way Mesos doles out resources, we can, we can take fine slices of machines so that when you schedule something uh, like a, an individual web server, we don't have to fit it on an entire machine. We can take exactly as much as we need, and that means that we can get a lot more for our money with the hardware that, that we own. Cool. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about how you uh, have applied these, you know, uh, problem-solving frameworks and systems into, you know, some of uh, kind of what you do on a day-to-day -day basis? 
the typical flow, there's, there's a lot of different types of customers that we have, and I'll, and I'll, I'll speak about Twitter here because that's where I have the most experience with Aurora. Um, it's been really popular with, with people doing analytics, which uh, was something I did not expect at all. Um, because we, we offer the ability to run things on a cron job uh, or a cron schedule, there's been a lot of people using it to do things like trigger Hadoop jobs. Uh, and also uh, at Twitter, we have different, uh, different infrastructure for, for analytics uh, like Storm and we're starting to use Spark. Uh, we have Summingbird, a bunch of other things that are open source as well. And there's been a lot of interesting integrations with those types of things to make it easier for, for people to sort of offer services that are yet another layer above Aurora, which is something that I, didn't, I don't think we saw coming at all, but has been really cool to see that happen. And then on almost the entire opposite end of the spectrum, we have the, some of the largest services at Twitter uh, that are using Aurora. So you have teams of dozens of people that are, you know, constantly working on some application and maybe a separate small team of people that are actually deploying it and, and maintaining it in production. So there's been a lot of, of tooling infrastructure and, uh, and sort of uh, uh, professional deployment systems built around that or, or maybe like uh, refined deployment systems built around that. Um, and and that's, that's sort of what we expected more when we first were, were building Aurora. Uh, and I'll give a little bit of, of a background as well. So Aurora is, the inspiration for things like Aurora, I think, uh, at least for me, has been Google's Borg. So a lot of the the power that we, we saw of Borg, we wanted at Twitter. And so that was the kind of stuff that we saw most when I was was at Google, was, or at least most, what I mostly integrated with was uh, large-scale services. So that's what we really built it for. And, uh, and that's where it's really, I think, been buying the company the most uh, most value, but uh, there's been a lot of other interesting use cases that, like I said, we didn't really see coming. Yeah, that's very interesting. So Bill, when someone installs Aurora and gets it running, how do they start building applications uh, that work uh, inside of the framework that gets scheduled? Yeah, so one of the, the interesting things is that once, once you run your first server, you're probably going to realize two things. One, I don't know ahead of time what host I'm running on, and two, uh, if you're doing it right anyway, you don't know what, even what port you're listening on ahead of time. So th this, this sort of cuts out entirely uh, some of the more traditional ways of configuring networked services to talk to each other uh, in that you can't just have uh, you know, a static port and a set of hosts. Uh, so what we what we do here is we we don't try to do any sort of software defined networking or anything like that, um, but instead we uh, we use a feature of Mesos which is uh, allocation of um, of a set of a resource. So the way this looks on the on the slave command line is we're gonna we're gonna specify a port range, and Mesos doesn't actually. This is what I find kind of interesting is that Mesos doesn't even know about this uh, this resource as being anything interesting at all. It's just an opaque resource to it. It's just some set of numbers that it's doling out uh, when they're requested. So when we schedule a task, we're going to assign a port. And with uh, our DSL, there's a way that you can sort of supply a, a mustache-style variable that we plug in on your command line. Uh, so this will be typically the port that you're listening on. And so you're going you're gonna to learn that at runtime, basically. And so, so now the problem becomes, okay, how do I do service discovery? And 
we've found this kind of an interesting challenge, especially in open source, because there there really is no one standard for this. Uh, there's a lot of shops that, that that use load balancers for this purpose. There's a lot of use of Zookeeper. There's uh, there's uh, etcd now. There's console. So uh, for right now, all that we support is uh, we support Zookeeper. So there's uh, there's a really great RPC client that if you haven't heard of it, uh, Finagle, that's also open sourced by Twitter. So these sort of work uh, perfectly together. So you can basically in your configuration with one line uh, tell our, our system to announce your application in Zookeeper when we launch it. And you're going to have just some, some fixed path. So maybe it's like slash, uh, slash service slash nginx or something like that. And all of your clients are going to have to talk to it with that. And uh, so the problem here now becomes we, we sort of push it out to the, to the client. And in, in cases where you completely control all of the software, this works great because you now actually have, in my opinion, a, a better load balancing solution because you, know, you have request level understanding of, of uh, choosing the right backends and all that, but that's a whole separate discussion. Um, but for things like when you're using off-the-shelf software and you need to talk to something, that's a lot more challenging. So you kind of, we need uh, some other level of support for this. Um, so this is this is currently a, a feature gap in Aurora where we we don't provide any sort of federated or, or standardized connection based load balancing that you can just use off the shelf software with. Um, so the one of the standard approaches that I've seen for this problem has been basically just a dynamically configured HA proxy. Uh, so I think we're going to explore that so that you can just sort of have an HA proxy running alongside. Your 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 server, or your, rather your client, and that's going to be dynamically configured so that you're just talking to some port on localhost, and that's being dynamically routed out to the real backend. Uh, and I mentioned console as well, which is that's another interesting one that we need to look at because uh, that that actually would take over even more of the burden from us because it's going to do the the service uh, the service discovery as well as the routing. So that might be an interesting thing to explore as well. And com console also does the DNS very nicely. It's uh, you know it's cool if you could just deploy, you know, my server dot dev three dot, you know, example dot com, and then if that moves, right, the IP and DNS just all resets, and if you get an error, you can just connect, and you know, it's all kind of seamless. Um, so the deployed application doesn't have to like, you know, just like oh that's an error, and then just get it to new. You know, IP from the DNS entry and like good to go and just figured out the TTLs. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I think that's. I, I always struggle with these these types of things because it's one of those things that I, I think it it assumes the client is smarter than many clients actually are. So that, I think this is going to be the next really big challenge is to uh, sort of sell the idea of writing really robust clients. That's why we've really started with Finagle because. That is the the standard RPC client that we use at Twitter, and we've had fantastic success with it. Uh, and a big reason for that is because it's extremely robust and extremely performant. Um, and it's really really hard to write a client that that does both of those things. And uh, I think that's one of the the next big things that's really missing, at least outside of the JVM, because you know we can just tell people to use Finagle, but I don't know that there's equivalents that are that are open source and that robust uh, in other languages. 
Yeah, it's also the async watcher feature of Zookeeper 2, right? Getting that callback when it has changed is really a driving force behind that, right? It's like all of a sudden something has moved and you know that and you know where's the new place to go and your code could just react to it, right? Like that action is important and doesn't exist in a lot of other places. Yeah, I think that's you're definitely right. And that's one of the things that I think a lot of the, uh, the other solutions or other approaches that you might see put together, may they may do the the sort of 99% uh, of the time they might do just fine but yeah when when things move you you really don't want to have these these micro outages and have have requests just dropped on the floor when things move around or as things fail yep so yeah you're definitely right yeah it's better for the applications to know about it and let them figure out what they want to do maybe they shut down whatever they want to do it's up to them so if i was a software engineer and you know let's say i get you know a ticket at 301 a.m. you know some issue happened or whatever could I use Aurora to reliably schedule monitoring to take place like just before and after that issue, like that time window and like turn on debug logs, you know, like an hour before and then turn it off an hour after or something and capture it? And like, how would I go about scripting that? Like from an engineering perspective, like what's the interface to Aurora? Sure. Uh, so first of all, one thing that we hope is that we can prevent a lot of pages, a lot of unnecessary pages for, for people managing services. Uh, because we we will automatically reschedule things when machine fail uh, when machines fail uh, we can we can take a lot of the extra pain out of out of managing a service so we kind of provide this this low substrate so that you don't have to worry about individual machines as much and that takes a lot of the burden out of of being on call but when it comes to actually the uh, issues at the application level um, we We've tried to really draw a firm boundary with developing Aurora so that we don't become too tightly coupled with, with different methodologies of, of running applications. So we really try hard to basically stop at the, the process execu execution level. So um, you can sort of think of Aurora as a really interesting and uh, complicated way to run bash code anywhere in your data center. So, so basically the, the short answer to that question is uh, it's no different than what you would do today. So you might build something into your application that is going to let you send a post request and bump up your log level. And we're going to capture all of that information to your sandbox so it's accessible to you. But we're, we're not going to try to to like you know give you some sort of uh, scaffolding to build into your application to, to automate any, any of that. Um, and, and this sort of, I think that's the kind of methodology that has let us open up all these use cases that we really don't push anything on the application developer. But it does mean that if you want common things like that, you kind of really have to build out that, that sort of common library support into your, your applications. Can you talk a little bit more about the sandbox and how Aurora allows the end user to interact with that? Sure. So, so a brief summary there is when Mesos runs a, a task, or at least a process-based task, it's going to uh, create a sandbox directory for it. So that's a, a universally unique, or at least within the machine, a universally unique directory. And that's sort of scratch space. So that's, that's all intended to be ephemeral information. So that could be your artifacts for your application. Uh, and the other likely candidate is things like logs that you, that you, uh, you record to, to track what your application is up to. And uh, within that sandbox, uh, you, we, we try to suggest that people only look from that directory down. So you try to minimize the number of times that you read things outside of that sandbox just to 
limit coupling with the, the machine configuration. And uh, within that directory, we make it pretty easy to go in and explore the content. So we basically have a, a sort of a file system browser that uh, you can access through your, your web browser. And then we also have some command line tooling so that you can do things like uh, like run a distributed shell command across all of the the instances of your application. So if you wanted to like grep all of your logs for a particular uh, error message, you can do that with just a single command. Uh, or if you want to SSH into a machine, uh, we have a command that you can do that and we'll drop you right into that sandbox so it's pretty easy to quickly navigate to the files that you're interested in. So this, so the sandbox is almost like uh, an ephemeral directory that you, it's like your ephemeral like home dir essentially for Mesos. That's exactly what it is. And in the future, that's going to expand into more things, uh, especially at, like, so one of the cool things about building on top of Mesos is that we just get to sort of sit back and they build all the resource isolation. So we're going to start to just pick up things for free, like, um, you know, like mounted sandbox directories or um, we're, I believe they're starting to work on sort of a Docker-like support uh, in a first-class way so that you can layer different, uh, different file systems or layer Docker images. And I think that's really cool that we're just going to basically get that for free. Cool. Um, so what about other frameworks and other systems, Spark, Storm, Hadoop, Samza, et cetera? Can you talk a little bit about like, where they live in the ecosystem? So I don't know a whole lot about them. Um, I, I definitely haven't looked at the code for the frameworks. Uh, I know that Spark started very, very early as a Mesos framework, and uh, I know it's picked up a lot of interest and a lot of adoption. And like I mentioned at, at Twitter, we're starting to experiment with it, and I think it's got a lot of promise. Uh, Storm sort of backed into being uh, a framework on top of Mesos. So it was originally written uh, basically from, from the bare metal up to, to do a lot of things, and uh, when uh, when that, that software first came to Twitter, uh, one of the first things we did was sort of assess what things we could share. And it was not too long after that we started building, or at least retrofitting Storm so that you could use it as, uh, as a framework on top of Mesos. And we actually still use it that way today. Awesome. Um, so what else is, uh, where are things moving ahead with resource scheduling with Aurora and features and, you know, there's hypervisors and Docker and, you know, can templates for Redis and MySQL and Kafka and all sorts of different systems. You know, is it Kubernetes integration? Like, what's kind of the future for Aurora? And like, where do you see you know the next uh, the next year or two? So the the things on our mind are primarily at least at least as far as furthering feature set. We really want to to push farther on automation. Uh, so, for example, right now when you specify. Uh, configuration for something that you want to launch in Aurora, you're going to specify things like the number of CPUs, the amount of RAM, the amount of disk, and then the number of instances to schedule of those. And we'd love to actually automate that process. There's research showing that humans are just notoriously terrible at making those estimates. Um, and that's even assuming that people are doing uh, doing the due diligence of load testing to to sort of empirically arrive at the right numbers for those, because it's just it's really difficult to predict those types of things. And especially as you continue to iterate on software, things are changing. So those parameters are always changing. So what we'd like to do is is explore automating that. So uh, it's it's more of a just work solution where you can give us an application and we can just sort of figure out what it needs in terms of resources on the individual machine and then also across the cluster. 
I think that's going to be really powerful because I think we're going to be able to save a lot of money in terms of, of what we need for resources at Twitter. And uh, I think it's going to save developers a lot of time because we, we quite often have to, to deal with sort of helping out people to figure out what those, those values are. And it also is sort of at times a bit of a, an abstraction leak because we, like what, the way we try to, to, to guide developers at Twitter is to let us be the abstraction to the machine. And uh, this can leak in places where people you know, ask for you know, 32 or 64 gigs of RAM and, and maybe we don't have that many machines at that profile or maybe that's just too large of a fraction of a machine and we have to push back on them and say, well, this is why you're not scheduling. Uh, and if we were to automate more of that, we could just make that work. Uh, the big problem there is that's sort of at odds with predictability and uh, you know, being able to know for sure that you can deal with bursts of traffic. So that's actually a really hard problem to solve and something that's going to probably take a lot of, of effort. Um, you mentioned Docker. We definitely want to integrate with Docker. Um, it's, it's a little bit challenging because it's not sure even within Mesos entirely what that looks like because there's, uh, there's sort of some, some conflict of, of features there, right? There's, uh, there's the CPU and memory isolation that Mesos already integrates with and provides through C groups. Um, but then there's the really nice things like the file system isolation that we'd love to pick up. So I think we're, we're definitely going to see Docker, at least resource uh, isolation for the disk uh, and, and sort of deployment by a Docker image in Aurora in the near future. Uh, and, and hopefully somehow we can figure out what the, what the sort of division of responsibilities looks like between Docker and Mesos. So Apache Aurora has a nice feature around service uh, SLAs and such. Can you speak a little bit to that? Sure. So one of the one of the difficult things with this type of software is to, especially as we're picking up new new users and you know trying to get internal adoption at Twitter, was to prove to people that we are actually going to keep your service up. Um, you know, especially for large services that have sort of built up their, their, their tooling ecosystem and have gotten comfortable, it's, it's sort of hard to intrinsically just say that we'll try really hard. Uh, it's, you just really can't gain users that way. So what we've done is we've, we've done some instrumenting to try to calculate how effective we are at keeping applications running. And we've, we've approached this in two ways. We, we, we provide two primary types of of metrics out of the scheduler. One of those is on a per job basis, we'll export the uptime of the job in, uh, in a histogram. So you're going to see different percentiles of uptime. So that the way to think about that is if you were to sort all the uptimes of the instances of a job, we're going to, sh we're going to show you the 99th, the 90th, the 50th, and so on. And this is useful for uh, things like caches where you need to keep the cache warm for it to actually be a useful cache. Uh, and and the, the interesting tension there that I think we're still trying to figure out is how that relates to uh, our internal operations of the cluster, which is sort of at odds with the teams doing their own deployments. So we sort of have to start to make all of our tooling more sophisticated so that they all respect those SLAs uniformly um, so that we can sort of have this mutual understanding that we're all trying to keep this cache up and running. And where that gets really uh, important for, for Twitter SREs, for Aurora and Mesos, is that we don't want to reboot the cluster too fast, for example. 
or we don't want to start killing off uh, machines that are ho- that are holding, uh, you know, a, a ten second old cache because that cache needs to warm up before it's useful. Uh, so that's that's sort of the the one angle. The other angle is, is statistics around how often things fail, and it's and it's the platform's fault. So you know the the uptime that's influenced by users restarting or upgrading their jobs. But this one, we we try to specifically catch the different types of of instance failures that are a result of the the platform as a whole. So that could be Aurora or Mesos or the actual machines or or the networking equipment. And and this is one is personally very interesting for me because I think it's a really great way for us to over over a long duration. So that's really interesting because uh, as we as we run things over a long duration of time, we can keep those statistics and and try to notice when things are gradually getting worse. So we can see the, the sort of canary in the coal mine effect and and catch on to problems uh, over the long duration as opposed to the short duration. So can you speak a little bit to um, where where uh, Twitter is with their deployment of Mesos and Aurora and you know what's running, what's not running, and kind of like what's the current state of the union? Yeah, so you're uh, you're kind of touching on some slides that you've seen in a presentation. Uh, so so yeah, in, in a couple of presentations that I've done, I've tried to sort of give some more detailed insight into how heavily invested Twitter is in Mesos and Aurora, and I've done I, I do this visually with sort of a gradient of of investment from not invested at all and not even using some system or software to everything that is, can possibly be run on this thing is run on this thing. And the the inflection point that we're at right now at Twitter, at least the one that we've recently crossed, uh, well, not even that recently, it's probably about, about six months to a year ago, was that all new things must run on Aurora. Um, so so basically, when you're a, when you're an engineer starting up a new project at Twitter, the it's assumed that you're going to run on on uh, Aurora, and then sort of the next level down is okay. Well, can you run on Mesos as a custom framework? And sort of the the scrutiny gets higher the further down the stack that you go, uh, and the way that we're at, or the position that we're at right now, is that um, you you sort of really uh, have to prove out that that you need to run on bare metal, um, but also we're trying to catch up with all the legacy services to really just sort of gather everything else into Aurora and or Mesos, um, and then the next big step that we're making, we're, we're sort of on the cusp of right now, is picking up more sensitive services. Uh, so I mentioned the SLA support, uh, and that's that's been basically a big requirement for us to, to take on the, the massive caching infrastructure that we have at Twitter. Um, so, so this is sort of us being able to prove out our long-term reliability. Um, and I think our, well, we've already got a large amount of that infrastructure already moved in. And I and I believe it's going to be over the next quarter that we're going to see more of the the critical caching move in as well. Is there anything else that you want to bring up today, Bill? Uh, yeah. So one of the big challenges that we've had in Aurora is uh, is basically finding the right balance between doing things that are are right for Twitter and doing things that are really beneficial to the community. So this is why you you might not see already features like like Docker um, and, and other sort of uh, or, you know, other packaging systems, um, and 
that's basically because all, almost all the contributors right now are Twitter employees. So one of the big things that I hope that we can achieve in the next couple of months is to start to get more contributors to open up more more diverse systems and sort of help us generalize the software so that we can adapt to to more you know external friendly things. Uh, and we've also got a lot of work to do to actually make the software easier to use and deploy. So I uh, would really love to have more people trying it out and, and and most importantly telling us what hurdles that they run into so that we can make it a lot easier. Um, so Bill, thank you for your time today. Thanks a lot, Joe.